1: Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am James Birch, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Good evening, Father. Hello, Jim. Now, the topic for tonight is one that is uh, near and dear to me. I teach U.S. history to high school students, and uh, one of our our readers brought up a topic which we're going to use um, in our discussions tonight, and that involves the history of the Catholic Church in the United States of America. Um, Too often, uh, it has been my uh, experience that history books, even well-written history books, tend to glaze over uh, Catholicism's uh, roots here in our country, and uh, also there's no real tie-in to what uh, our governmental system and uh, Catholicism um, mean to each other, how they coexisted at the beginning uh, through the middle parts of our country, and then, of course, uh, we've seen the uh, It affects uh, uh, a lot of the decline of morality on both our government uh, and the church recently. Um, And I would like to start by asking Father, um, what are your thoughts about the the church, the Catholic church, and the republican form of government that was originally at least formed by our founding fathers and, and how those two coexist with each other? Well, the
0: the Church does not adopt any particular form of government for uh, the nations of the world. Um, Obviously, the form of government for the Church itself was established by our Lord, and so the Church received that from our Lord and and carefully protects that. Uh, The modernists today are attacking that. They're changing the very nature of the papacy, basically creating their own, you know, uh, counter-papacy or anti-papacy. Um, But the real Catholic Church received from our Lord its own form of government. But as far as the forms of governments of nations, the Church says that it's up to the people of those nations to determine what form of government they want. And the Church has worked with uh, monarchies, and has worked with uh, republics, uh, representative governments. Uh, The Church has worked with aristocracies, the church has always acknowledged, though, that uh, when these forms of governments corrupt, a monarchy will become a tyranny, and a, uh, an aristocracy will corrupt into an oligarchy, and uh, a republic will sometimes corrupt into a democracy. Uh, democracy was always considered to be, even in ancient times, a, a kind of corrupt form of government, because it was associated with, like, rule, rule by the mob, mobocracy. Um, In fact, uh, in the early part of our country, uh, democracy, uh, in the early stages of our country, even its formative stages, uh, democracy was explicitly rejected by the founding fathers as a form of rule by the mob, Uh, straight democracy. So, the republican form of government, insofar as we are a republic, insofar as we are a representative republic, is perfectly acceptable to the Catholic Church. What the Church is concerned about is not so much the the structure of the government as what what is the Constitution, what are the ruling principles of the government, uh, what are the principles governing its laws, and uh, the judgment of the compliance with or or violation of the laws and the execution then of reward and punishment. Uh, The Church's hope Point is to preach the gospel, as our Lord said, uh, to justify and sanctify human souls, and to teach them to observe the moral law of God and make men faithful to God. So, if the laws of the, of any society, regardless of its form of government, are in conformity with the law of the gospel, the church says this is exactly what the church itself wants. This is what Christ wants. And so this, the Church says is a good form of government. Uh, To the extent that the principles governing a society society, and of course this has to do with the individuals or in positions of authority, to the extent that they reject the law of Christ and they are contrary to the natural law and the divine positive law established by, by our Lord, they are evil and they will produce very evil fruits uh, and the people will suffer accordingly, and it can become so corrupt. A society can become so corrupt that God will actually punish that society um, sometimes in a very terrible way. Often, they bring this. This their own corruption brings this punishment upon them. Uh, they say that virtue is its own reward. In nations, that is true, and the contrary is true also. That vice is its own punishment. And uh, I think we're witnessing a lot of that right now in in the in the world today.
1: It's interesting that you uh, described it earlier as the uh, having the church work with uh, the government because um, if we look to uh, the early church in America and um, maybe to the first bishop Bishop Carroll, uh, it was interesting even how he became the first bishop of the United States because it was through uh, the the church actually taking into consideration the uh, the new government here in the United States that he was chosen. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Franklin, uh, for example, in France, petitioned <coughs> Rome and said John Carroll would make a great uh, choice for Bishop. Thomas Jefferson uh, confirmed when, well, when Rome actually went and asked they were the diplomats in, mm-hmm. in France at the time and uh, Jefferson said, yes, we, we think that he would be a very good choice. We're not going to, going to tell you, who we think you should make, because that would that would actually violate what we, we feel the government our government stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting how well the church uh, went out of its way to make sure that it would work with the government. And then Carroll later became one of the greatest proponents proponents of our form of government because he said it does exactly what the church here needs, in that it's not interfering. And it's giving us the the leeway to do exactly the things that we need to do in the United States here, and that is to grow without having any government interference. And he agreed with our founding fathers, such as Washington. Uh, In fact, Carroll was uh, dined at uh, Mount Vernon only months uh, before Washington's death, Um, held him up to be a very great man. He uh, agreed with Washington uh, about the idea that the virtue of the people, and the virtue of the people running the government uh, from the secular standpoint, is what really would make a difference. And when that virtue was lost, when those Christian principles were lost, then no matter the form of government, it's going to go down the tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, uh, and this is a little bit of a tidbit of uh, history that I think is interesting, and I would like your thoughts on it as well. Today, uh, our government talks about the separation of church and state. But if we really look at the what the Founding Fathers did, Um, Washington was the uh, president of the Continental Congress that formed our very Constitution. And uh, when they were having trouble with the Indians out west, uh, the Secretary of War at the time, uh, Henry Knox, went to Washington and said, you know, one thing that might really help is if we could send some Christian missionaries uh, out to the Indians. Carroll, Bishop Carroll at the time, heard about this and wrote a letter to Washington and said, I have a couple of priests who would love to go out there and be missionaries and Washington wrote back and said, now may not be a good time, I think the Indians are kind of on the warpath, but I'll keep that in mind. Sure enough, a year or two later, Washington went to Congress and asked them, and Congress appropriated money to send two Catholic priests out to the Indians, and year after year, kept paying for them to stay out there and, uh, and preach and um, uh, baptize the, the Indians out there. That's so different, I mean, we can't even imagine our government nowadays saying that that would remotely be what our government or the principles our government stood for or, or began with. And yet here is a, a prime example of the people who wrote the Constitution or part of the Constitutional Convention going out of their way to send Catholic priests out to the Indians and to pay for that. So how does that, how does that drive with what people are saying nowadays about the separation of, of church and state?
0: Well, of course, this concept of separation of church and state uh, derives, we're told, from Thomas Jefferson. And here you have a case, a very practical case, of the United States government under Washington. And apparently, with the approval, you know, there was no great protest that that we know of from Jefferson of allocating public funds to sending these missionaries out to work with the the Native Americans, the Indians west and so uh, the modern understanding or misunderstanding and misrepresentation of Jefferson's words separation of church and state um, is evident that it's evident that Jefferson did not understand his words the way they're trying to interpret them now and Jefferson understood them from the standpoint of this that he wanted to protect religion against government not the other way around okay because he saw government as a threat to religion And, uh, you know, when you mentioned uh, Jefferson and you mentioned uh, Benjamin Franklin being consulted for their opinion of the man, uh, Bishop, well, not yet Bishop Carroll, when he was being vetted, as it were, uh, there are people who would say that, well, Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, these would not necessarily be a good endorsement. Uh, In fact, uh, traditional Catholics might look at that Uh, The the favorable opinion that Thomas Jefferson had, the favorable opinion that Benjamin Franklin had of uh, John Carroll and consider that to be a detriment rather than a benefit, and uh, a testament to Carroll's unsuitability rather than suitability as a bishop. And and it's true. I mean, uh, Jefferson was a deist at best. And Franklin uh, probably wasn't even on the, on the charts as a deist, I mean, uh, he was, anyway, uh, these men, uh, you know, their, their faith was very minimal. In fact, you know, Jefferson produced his so-called Bible, which he produced by simply getting out of scissors and just chopping out of sacred scripture, whatever he didn't like, right, whatever didn't fit in his mind. Um, like any good Protestant. Like, well, I'm afraid, yes. It, 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 Luther did that. He yeah. tore whole books out of the Bible because he didn't like them. So, yeah, he was a, a good good son of Luther there. <laughs> but uh, the fact is, when these two men were saying uh, that he's a good candidate, I think what they were saying, they weren't judging his Catholicism. Right. I think they were just saying that, yes, as an individual, <clears throat> he's a reasonable man, and he will... Uh, be a credit to the church, your church, and he will work with us in in, uh, in promoting good government, I, I, the, their concept of good government according to the principles of the natural law incorporated in the Constitution. In other words, I think they respected him. Correct. And furthermore, I think they actually respected the church. There was an enormous amount of respect for the Catholic Church among the founding fathers. And in fact, I think, wasn't Washington himself educated by the Jesuits for a certain part of his life? At least that's my understanding. I know he admired them. At least his rules of etiquette were largely
1: taken from uh, Jesuit rules for for etiquette. And and both he he and uh, John Adams attended some uh, Catholic uh, worship services um, in Philadelphia when they were there as well. Mm -hmm. And spoke highly of them, Yes, actually. Um, So uh, I think there was a certain openness there in them. Um... Franklin did also have a personal reason for uh, admiring John Carroll. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sent on a diplomatic mission together, and Carroll was chosen because he was a Catholic priest and the diplomatic mission was to Catholic uh, Canada. Okay. And of course, Franklin being the foremost diplomat went on the trip. Mm-hmm. Well, Franklin got very ill uh, while in Canada, and Carroll by all means, could have gone on back to the United States by himself, but instead he stayed with Franklin when the other diplomats didn't. Took care of Franklin for the entire trip back, which took months. Mm-hmm. And um, so Franklin also had a personal reason to mm-hmm. to understand that uh, Carroll's truly good character uh, from a much more personal uh, standpoint as well. Mm-hmm. So I think your, your point about they felt that he had good character is, is exactly right. And I also think, it I just thought it was so interesting that the church, I mean, the the church gets slammed so often by the secular press or by Protestants as uh, uh, being—we—they don't want to participate with anybody else. That they just uh, any anyone else's uh, opinions don't matter at all. But it's just not the truth. The Mm -hmm. the church—it wants to work with good uh, secular governments to do what's best for the people, because by doing so, the church can do the best for the people's souls. Mm -hmm. And and so they—they were approaching these men who, like you even said, were not Catholics. Um, And in some respects may not even been good Protestants Uh, But but they were the the one men who they needed to approach because they were the diplomats who were over in France Mm -hmm. at the time It was the church who was seeking out good counsel Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I mean the church promotes the seven spiritual works of mercy, but the seven corporal works of mercy, too And anybody involved in civil government would would appreciate the seven corporal works of mercy. I mean the church has been uh, devoted to both of those so thoroughly in all of her existence. I mean, she's the greatest charitable institution on the face of the earth. The only time there's a problem with that is when the government tries to become a charitable institution. The government is primarily concerned with justice. The church is concerned with charity. When the government tries to uh, become a charitable institution, and giving away, giving away the, 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 the property and giving away the wealth of the land... Uh, in a sense, to buy votes in the form of welfare, and takes away that charitable character, then the government becomes very unjust and becomes very tyrannical and sees the church as a rival. But the church, when the government is involved in matters of justice, and the, and the church is uh, not not exclusively, obviously, but you know, primarily, and when the church sees. Uh, that justice must be done, but the church is also concerned in the charitable works that she is destined for. You can have harmony between the federal government, the, the civil government, and the ecclesiastical government. And that's, that's the ideal. That's when you have peace, conquered tranquility, and prosperity. You know, you, you mentioned uh, Archbishop Carroll and his uh, favorable understanding of, of the republican form of government, of our... The fact that we had a republic. And uh, you can understand very well how he's looking at this. He sees in Europe <clears throat> the crowned heads of the most Catholic kings, right, of France and Spain, and, uh, and what happened in England with Henry. And, uh, and, and he sees them in the grip of the Masonic advisors and prime ministers. And he sees these uh, being turned against the church. There was a morning, uh, there was one evening when John Carroll went to bed as a Jesuit and woke up and found that his religious order, the Jesuits, didn't exist anymore. (laughs) Because uh, Clement XIV had been bludgeoned into submission by the Masons um, to simply suppress the order. Uh, they had already succeeded in getting it suppressed civilly in in uh, France and in uh, in Portugal right and in Spain but they wanted the church to crush the order because they considered that to be the great obstacle to their takeover <clears throat> the Masons that is and they couldn't get anywhere with Clement the 13th but when Clement the 14th was a was uh, elected, they bent every, they strained every power they had to force him into submission. And he gave in, he caved in. So much so, by the way, that when the Masons were plotting to infiltrate the church, and they wrote the permanent instruction of the Alta Vedita in the early 1800s, they mentioned uh, Clement Fourteenth by name, Ganganelli was his family name, as the pope they needed to find again. Someone that they could control by threats or by flattery or both and so this man did a very bad turn but here you have uh, John Carroll Father John Carroll the Jesuit John Carroll who woke up one morning and found that his religious order had been suppressed uh, by Pope Clement the the 14th being pressured by the governments the most Christian kings of these Catholic nations and uh, puppets of the Masons. And so he would certainly appreciate the need to get the uh, government out of the control of the Masons and to at least give the church the liberty to function. Why? Well, our Lord said of himself, He who is not with me is against me. And as the Son of God, of course, that must be so. But our Lord said to his apostles, he who is not against you is for you. And so he who does not try to impede you um, or resist you, he's actually favoring what you're doing. And so if John Carroll saw that in the light of those words of the gospel, he would say, well, if we have a government that can at least be hands-off and not work against the church, and uh, understand that uh, the government of the United States of America and the Constitution of the United States of America is not, uh, let's say, freedom from religion, but freedom of and freedom for religion, then, uh, then the Church can do her work and she can flourish. And the very force of her, of her power, you know, of her faith and her sacraments, can actually uh, do great things. In fact, we saw the results of that. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of converts to the Catholic faith every year. Uh, some diocese, some great dioceses of the United States of America were, were, were receiving literally thousands of converts a year uh, until Vatican II crushed that. And uh, that that was a real tragedy. So, uh, you know, Archbishop John Carroll was a great church man, and his first... Uh, uh, allegiance was to Christ and to his church, but he also saw an opportunity here in the New World, in uh, the United States, uh, for the church to act and not have those fetters of government control over her. And that's what he was favoring. And actually, uh, the history of the church in its early days showed the wisdom of that. But unfortunately, you know, Jim, uh, that all had to be destined f- to bring um, the United States of America to our Lord, to recognize him, to embrace him as its Lord, to embrace the cross and the faith, the Catholic faith. But there is that fatal flaw, though, that, that, that one thing lacking that is the one thing that really matters, and that is the acceptance of Christ and his authority and his gospel. Uh, there was a lot of talk about it, in the early uh, days of the country that America was a Christian nation but they didn't have a clear idea what that really meant because of Protestantism and so on. And so um, unfortunately the seeds of its own destruction uh, were sown into the Constitution insofar as unfortunately there was also a religious indifferentism that was what uh, i am sure uh, archbishop carol wanted to overcome to see the church overcome when she had the opportunity to convert the nation but uh and you know the fact is it, it might well have happened the church was thriving it, it was just, it, it was amazing how rapidly the church was growing and uh Uh, expanding in membership and death, um, and then Vatican II hit and ruined everything.
1: It was even amazing how quickly the church gained its footing once the Constitution was put into place and Carroll became bishop, because uh, when he became bishop, uh, I believe the number of priests in America numbered only in the 20s or 30s, uh, along with himself. By the uh, time he died in the 1820s, which interestingly enough saw the reestablishment of his order yeah, uh, right yeah, before his death. Yeah. Um, he was not only an archbishop; there uh, were four uh, other bishops uh, mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, there were uh, Catholic schools, Catholic universities. <coughs> Mother Seton had started uh, the uh, school, and uh, her sisters uh, under Archbishop uh, Carroll's uh, mm-hmm. uh, tutelage. Um, and the number of priests and the number of, of Catholics was just ex- was exploding already right. by that right. time. Right. 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 Um, And it was and it was amazing. I mean, I wasn't. Am I wrong about this? Wasn't Catholicism the number one growing religion in the United States? Oh, before Vatican II,
0: certainly by far. Certainly by far. And uh, I mean, as a matter of fact, the the church was so good at apologetics, at explaining the faith, and and explaining the errors against the faith. You know, that reasonable people were coming to the church. They they just had a tremendous even those who had not yet embraced the faith and entered the Catholic Church, had such a tremendous admiration for the Catholic faith um, that they referred to her. I mean, my goodness, there were men who said that the greatest moral leaders on the face of the earth were the Popes. Pius IX, Pius X, and so on. And those speaking were not even Catholics. but They just admired them so much. You know, another reason why Archbishop Carroll might well have thought that this uh, federal government outlined in the Constitution was really the right way to go, is because he had seen the persecution of the church in the colonies and the, the colonial laws that forbade the church. I mean, uh, let's face it, uh, in, the, in the, the two ships, the Ark and the Dove, uh, the, the first Catholic colonists came to America and they landed to establish the colony of Maryland right and uh, at that time uh, Catholics were actually forbidden to set foot in, in quite a number of the colonies and uh, there at least they had a colony that was populated by Catholics where they Catholics could practice their faith uh, perhaps the only other colony at the time Pennsylvania uh, that, that allowed Catholics freedom of, freedom of their religion um, uh, was also, you know, at least somewhat, at least tolerant of them, not welcoming to them. But uh, the Catholics in Maryland did allow Protestants to function in Maryland. And that was the downfall, in a sense, because when the Protestants gained the ascendancy hmm. uh, through the Protestant jihad, yes. uh, then they began to persecute the Catholics, right. even in Maryland. That's, that's
1: right.
0: <clears throat> so, you know, Archbishop Carroll, then Father Carroll might well have seen well, if we, have a, if we can have a federal government that will place these uh, colonies under a constitution which guarantees liberty to the Catholic Church, that would be a, a much better situation than this present persecution that is going on in all these colonies. And we'll give the chance uh, the church the opportunity. And as you say, when the church had the opportunity, she flourished. Uh, because the Catholic faith is so beautiful, the Catholic worship is so powerful and beautiful, and um, you know, people began to recognize that this is the truth. This is the Church that Christ established. Um, heaven only knows what would have happened uh, in this country, were it not for Vatican II. Because right up through the nineteen fifties, I mean, the seminaries were burgeoning. There was one seminary in the Midwest that had five miles of corridors, Mm. so enormous, and the seminarians were there uh, studying the faith to become priests, and this, what had been mission territory, and and right into the early 1900s, was now feeding the missions, sending priests throughout the world to the missions. Mm. Uh, What a transformation it could have been, but again... Uh, you know, there's a parable in the gospel about the man who sowed good seed in his field, and then an enemy came and sowed the weeds. And this was a case of an enemy had done this. Vatican
1: II. Yeah, it's interesting the uh, what, what you said about Carol and the uh, um, and, and Maryland and the, allowing the Protestants to uh, practice their faith because the everyone has this idea uh, that the uh, original pilgrims and etc. came over to the United States for religious freedom. They didn't come over here for religious freedom. They came over here for the freedom to practice their religion. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference there. And it was actually Maryland that first had the very first uh, Religious Toleration Act that allowed other faiths right. to practice. And, and you're right, <laughs> uh, Carol's family was fighting uh, against these Protestants who were trying to not allow them in Maryland to practice the Catholic faith anymore. And um, it, which is not surprising. Uh, one of Carroll's brothers signs the Declaration of Independence. Another one of his brothers signs the Constitution. They must have been very pleased with the idea, uh, especially Carroll, uh, understanding as he did, he had a great mind, understanding the churches, even the churches' own writings on uh, secular government. Because if you if you look at the writings of St. Robert Bellarmine, the Founding Fathers would never have been able to say it because mm-hmm. the Protestants would have gone crazy in the United States. Mm-hmm. But the pattern, uh, how they patterned, The U.S. Constitution after the writings of St. Robert Bellarmine, it is unmistakable Mm -hmm. that they obviously took that into account when they did it because his writings, I mean, I teach an entire part of my class about the writings of St. Robert Bellarmine as compared to the U.S. Constitution, you can almost just match them up. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's amazing because Bellarmine's point was if you have a form of government like this, it can match up so well Mm -hmm. with the church government and the two can work side by side, which is Mm -hmm. what's intended. And so Carroll must have just been thrilled with that idea, Mm. with with the knowledge that he had. And once Mm. again, he also was prudent enough never to have said that publicly Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to anyone. Um,
0: But he certainly would have seen that the uh, system of government that was being called for here in the States resembled very, very closely the churches uh, set up for religious orders. Mm. I mean... the religious orders in the church um, basically are a federation. They're a federation of independent houses who send representatives to represent them at general chapters at provincial chapters and general chapters and they elect the master or superior general that will govern the order. But each member of each one of those different houses of the religious order, and there can be hundreds of them, each member who has professed and has taken the vows to be a member of that, of that house, of that order, has rights. So, uh, the fact that he belongs to this community of this religious order that might go throughout the entire world gives him rights before that order, and no one can take those rights away. Uh, those rights have to be respected. So the rights and obligations are mutual in a Catholic religious order, even between the church and the individual member. You know? So uh, you, you have these, these houses that are established for a, an order like the Franciscans or the Benedictines or the Dominicans. And they're established with the approval of the Order and the Holy See. <clears throat> and they bring in members, and they're trained, and then they, they, with their own free will, make the vows, they go through the process of making them temporarily, and repeating them temporarily, until finally they are allowed to make them permanently. So it's a slow process. It takes a lot of thought, and that with absolute freedom, uh, to make that, that commitment. And once they make that commitment... As a matter of fact, it's so strict that if, uh, if, if you have one person who commits for his lifelong uh, vows, let's say his permanent vows, then you cannot change the constitutions that he has vowed to obey. You can't change those without either the consent of those who made the commitment to them or the Holy See. You have to go all the way to the Holy See itself, the, the, the highest authority in the church, to make a change in the constitutions and statutes that, that people have committed to. Uh, that's how carefully the church protects the, the, the rights of those who belong to our religious orders. <clears throat> but the individual house has a certain autonomy within the order, has a certain autonomy to be governed under their particular abbot um, if if it is an, uh, an abbey, and uh, they they have a government, but you know, with, it's like the principle of subsidiarity, <clears throat> and the higher power in the order can step in only when there is a failure. But <clears throat> as I say, uh, the house, the members of the house actually vote to send representatives of their own choice to the general chapter to decide how the entire order is going to be run and who even takes the helm as the uh, head of the religious order for a period of time. Uh, so they elect two offices the, and uh, anyone can be elected too. So, you know, when, when you when you look at the structure of a Catholic religious order uh, you know, any, any thinking person would say, well my goodness, it's like we have these individual states, right, and they have rights <clears throat> And there are certain rights that are given to the order in general, subject to the, to the supreme authority of the church. But then you have, uh, by the principle of subsidiarity, this, the, uh, the, the houses and the, the members, the provinces and all the rest have their own place, their own prerogatives. And this is how it's supposed to be in the United States of America. Uh, but when a tyranny takes over and you federalize, uh, to the point where uh, the Constitution is disregarded, and uh, you have uh, high-handed uh, dictating going on uh, from a tyrant, then you've got a problem. In the Church, that is less of a threat, uh, traditionally, because basically it's all subject to the Holy See. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but in the civil government, that is a real danger. Uh, As uh, De Tocqueville, I think it was Alexis De Tocqueville said, who came and, and, you know, examined our United States of America, uh, when he spoke of the possibility of our society degenerating into a democracy, I think it was De Tocqueville who said, when uh, the population of a nation or the public finds that it can vote itself to benefit out of the public largesse, you know, By voting, to basically uh, vote into power people who will give it things, you know. Uh, When voters discover they can vote into power people who will give them things, then you have uh, the seeds of tyranny and the beginning of the destruction of that society. In the welfare state, that's what we've got.
1: It's interesting, too, how the attacks on both the church and uh, the American form of government began, well, I don't just say began, but you can really see them starting to form. You, you have Pius X in the early 1900s giving his warnings, and you, then you have someone like a Woodrow Wilson coming into power, and all, all coming in around World War I, and uh, what I really feel happened was, is that while, while the church was strong enough to keep making a stand, so was our country, but then all of a sudden, Vatican II hits, and you see it, it was like together the fates were tied together. Mm-hmm. I so. Vatican II hit, and then our country has, <coughs> you know, w- w- was fighting not to allow all of the terrible things to happen in the, in the government that did, and it all of a sudden was just like it, an avalanche mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. all together. And, and, and it really, it, it's no coincidence that Vatican II, which I, I think was bolstering our country, was filling it with Catholics who. We're going to fight against that tyranny. When that <coughs> disappeared, so did the uh, opposition to the communistic forces mm-hmm. and etc. In the 1960s and but so on. Yes. Yeah. After after Vatican II, everything crumbled. Mm-hmm. Everything crumbled. I mean, uh,
0: there are those who would say, "Well, the United States was a Masonic nation. It was created. Uh, it formed in the womb of Masonry, being conceived by Masonry, and it was always dominated by Masonry." Uh, But there are plenty of examples from United States history that show that that is not true. Um, I mean, masonry played a big role. There's no doubt about it. And uh, we can't uh, allow ourselves to be deceived because the masons do try to magnify the role of masonry. (coughs) Um, And and, uh, put masonic aprons on people, you know, uh, in their their depictions of them where they really don't belong. For example, they try to make George Washington a big mason. There's evidence that he was in a Masonic lodge only twice, perhaps twice in his life, mm-hmm. once to be enrolled and then one time after that. <clears throat> but the Masons try to make it look as though he's, you know, for, forming the United States of America with the trowel and the and the and the square and the and the and all the rest. <clears throat> but there's there's no real evidence for that that I know of, anyway. Um, if he were really a Mason, uh, then the praise that he heaped upon the Catholic Church in this country. Wouldn't make any sense at all, if he was really a devout Mason. Mm. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, there was a time uh, after the Great War, uh, when the, uh, the League of Nations was the pet project of the Masons throughout the world. The Masonic-led uh, governments of uh, the Allied powers were pushing very hard, number one, to keep the influence of the church and the papists and the pope out of the Treaty of Versailles but there was a... They were, they were hell-bent on getting the League of Nations involved and they were trying, striving might and main to get the United States Congress to agree to subject the United States of America to the, United, to the League of Nations <clears throat> but I believe it was a Catholic Senator Lodge mm-hmm who led the charge against that, saying, this would, this would be contrary to our oaths of office, this would betray the sovereignty of the United States of America into the hands of, of an international power. And we cannot, in conscience, do this. <clears throat> and although worldwide masonry was, as I say, bending every, every uh, fiber it had to compel the United States of America, the United States was the only major power that would not consent. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> America said no to the League of Nations, and some say uh, that was the the trigger for World War II. Mm-hmm. That okay, we didn't get it through this time. We're going to have to do a try again. Let's have another World War here, and we'll bludgeon the United States of America into submission to make them realize we have to have a United Nations now. Mm -hmm. And the second time around, it worked to to get the United Nations in, okay? But even then, I mean, the Church was not in favor. Now you have Novus Ordo popes who are going there talking to the United Nations and never mentioning Christ, never mentioning Jesus by name. Mm -hmm. What an apostasy is that, you know? But the Church was not in favor of these international governments and worldwide governments that were represented by the League of Nations, the United Nations. Um, because she believed in the, the autonomy and independence of nations and how important that was. But the fact that the, Uni- the United States would not uh, endorse the, the League of Nations after World War I, I think, does show that the Masons did not have the absolute control over this country that many would have lo- would like to think it had, even among traditional Catholics. So I think they overplayed their hand when they insisted America was nothing but a Masonic monster created in the laboratories of Masonry. No, no, the Church and Masonry were striving Mm -hmm. here in this country for the Ascendancy. And the Church really had the Ascendancy because of the power of her faith. Mm -hmm. But Vatican
1: II, again, poisoned all that. Mm. The, um, uh, that's, uh uh you know what's interesting too maybe uh we can tie this in uh into a future show but the even the way that the country was formed the war for independence versus what would only happen what a decade later or so in france when the masons really had a, a grip uh, on, on a country like they did um the the terrible Bloodshed that occurred, and in, in the way that the French Revolution w- was mm-hmm. held, well, it was so opposed to the wa- way our war for independence was fought, mm-hmm. and now we're seeing how those effects have uh, in France have made it all the way even until today. Um, and with the recent, recently, now we have uh, you know the the Muslim forces in in France uh, uh, attacking mm-hmm. over there, and, and uh, basically. Uh, saying, you know, ha-ha, you know, you you let us in and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And just so I don't don't forget it, because I think it's an important point to make, too. People talk about the separation of of church and state, and then they want to also say, well, we're not a Christian country or a Judeo-Christian country. Uh, It it goes for all faiths. Well, it may be true that the uh, protection would go to keep the government out of religion, but the catholic religion was willing to work with the american government the muslim religion on the other hand is not willing to work with any government other than its own yeah. so that religion is going to come in and try to oppose by uh, uh, by its own laws yeah. the laws of our country yeah. that's a very different thing to say isn't it than
0: you oh, yeah. know the islam is by nature a uh, well, I wouldn't call it a religion. It's an ideology of conquest. Um, Islam is entirely based on slavery. Uh, from beginning to end. I mean, even the name Islam, even the, even the word Muslim, I mean, those who have submitted you know, to Allah, it's all about submission. And so, uh, basically, you can sum up Islam by saying that there are those who will uh, follow Muhammad and submit to Allah. And they have the right and even the duty to enslave or kill those who will not submit to Allah. So everyone in the world must, everyone allowed to live in the world must either avow himself to be the slave of Allah or be enslaved by those who are the slaves of Allah. But everybody's going to be a slave in the world. It is a slave world of Islam. That's the history of Islam. I mean, they don't like to... I mean, the, the politicians in Washington do not want to face it uh, or admit it. Uh, and, and I think this, some of them, because as socialists, they find that they, Islam is a pretty helpful... It's a tool. They think they can actually use Islam um, <clears throat> to uh, promote their own socialist tyranny. Um, in fact, I mean, uh, Mohammed didn't find himself expelled from Mecca, and he gained then the power and the wealth necessary to challenge Mecca. Uh, by, while in his exile, he became a leader of bandits. He was a bandit, and he would plunder caravans, and he would get, he would get uh, people to join his bandit gang by telling them, as the poor, you have the right to take, and the rich have the duty to give. If you will be the follower of uh, Muhammad and you will be the slave of Allah, you have the right to take these things. And they have an obligation to give them to you. And if you will not give them, then take. And this was his, his uh, uh, rationale for banditry. And this is why he gained an actual army of these people. Uh, bandits who eventually could challenge even the, the power of Mecca, the established entrenched powers in Mecca, and take them over. They were savages. And uh, this idea, you know, that's, that there's a real appeal in socialism <coughs> to that idea, you know, of taking, uh, and because we we are the chosen, you know, uh, of Allah, and we can enslave everyone and make them do our will. What 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 could better describe a socialist government than that? You know? um, but there are those who will not admit it in the United States government because they're blind. Uh, they're blinded by well, the modern church, for one thing. I mean, there are novus ordo. What, what percentage of our own representatives in Congress are novus ordo Catholics? Right? I mean, you go down the list, name after name after name after name, and uh, <clears throat> they they are all falling into this this trap of the Novus Ordo telling them, oh, we've got to be open to this, bring in the refugees bring them in we see what they just did in Paris, okay we see what they're doing to Europe right now, okay, this is an invasion the Hungarians know from their history what it was to resist uh, Islam on the march the the rampaging Islam um, bringing their Sharia law and you're right They have no intention of uh, honoring the United States Constitution. They're bringing their Sharia law with them. And, you know, either these people, tens of thousands of them banging on the doors of Europe, well, that's assuming there are doors, just streaming into Europe. Tens of thousands of them. Um, Either they're refugees or they're terrorists. And either way, you've got a problem. Obviously, if they're terrorists, this is an invasion, and they're here to hurt us very badly. But if they're refugees, if they're trying to escape uh, evil governments, of evil societies created by Islam, and Islam has made their own nations unlivable, and they're streaming, streaming into Christian societies looking for relief and an escape from the hell that is Islam, <laughs> why are they bringing Islam here? Why are they bringing, there is Sharia law now, to impose it on the rest of us and make our countries unlivable also? And this is what we're dealing with right now. <clears throat> and the White House is, well, hellbent on bringing <clears throat> these uh, Syrian uh, refugees, so-called, to America. <clears throat> but the fact is, in Syria, you've had these entrenched uh, uh Cities and villages are given over to terrorism, um, and th- these are the ones who are being pounded by Assad, and these are the ones who are going to be coming here as refugees. Um, but there's a reason why they Assad is pounding pounding them, because he sees them as a threat. This has been known. I'm not, I'm not saying anything that isn't commonly known and uh, from past history, but now all of this is being buried by uh, those who will lie in favor of Islam because they find it uh, useful to their purposes. Uh, Useful especially uh, because of their hatred for Christ and hatred for Christianity. This is what we're dealing with here, right now. Um, But you know, when, uh, when you talk about the American War for Independence, as you did a moment ago, and the French Revolution, you're dealing with two very different things, and you know that. Um, it always makes me bristle when they refer to the French Revolution and the American Revolution. That's a misnomer. There's, there's no
1: comparison. Well, that's what the British wanted to call it, because the British didn't like us. But,
0: well, I don't know. I mean, well, maybe not. Edmund Burke Edmund saw well, the difference, though. So.
1: That's true. And Burke actually, actually, as, as the war went on, point. the British came more and more to our side. The people uh, of England did, mm. so... Uh,
0: Yeah, they saw that this was not the French Revolution over here right Um, now. No, this was a a nation fighting for its God-given rights of independence from a uh, a tyranny, tyrannical government. In France, (laughs) that was not the case at all. Uh, You know, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, the enthronement of the prostitute in Notre Dame... Notre Dame uh, by the by the masons. I mean, all of the characters of the French Revolution, uh, Robespierre and Saint Just and the rest of them. They were monsters. Uh, We don't have any equivalents here in the United States. Uh, During our war for independence, we don't have anyone like a Robespierre. We don't have the Terror or anything
1: like that. There's no comparison. Oh, the comparison actually is to the the Muslims. To the, to trying to throw, throw God out of, uh, out of the way, and anyone who uh, stands for Christ mm-hmm. to, to kill them. Mm-hmm. And then that, that is really what the, the French Revolution, and now it's happening almost, uh, again, history repeats itself mm-hmm. there for them. Uh, it really was.
0: It was a hatred of Christ, a hatred of the Blessed Trinity, and this is what impels the Muslims to do what they do, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fundamentally, it is the same, the same kind of thing. And it's bringing the great terror I mean, you know, it's the corruption, it's not because Islam is strong, or has any great appeal, or has any power behind it Except the powers of hell It's the weakness of Christianity which has been poisoned by Vatican II Uh, You you know what, in the the concert hall uh, Where the terrorists burst in, and were spraying the, the gunfire, and murdering all those people do you know what those people were listening to at the time? They were listening to an American band, right? A metal, heavy metal band, I think it was called the, the Eagles of, of Hell, was that it? The Eagles oh. of Death. The Eagles of Death. <clears throat> the song they were singing, uh, if you can call it a song, or if you can call it singing, what they were shouting was, Kiss the Devil! Will you kiss the devil? Will you kiss the devil? Will you kiss the devil? Over and over again, the chant. Will you kiss the devil on his tongue? Kiss the devil on his tongue. That's what these people were rocking to <clears throat> when the jihadists opened fire on them. What a horror this mm-hmm. is, you know. <clears throat> and uh, all I can say is the answer they gave was yes, we will. Mm-hmm. And they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and the devil was willing to kiss them back. Mm-hmm. And it's called Islam. And Allah, Right? Uh, so I mean this is uh this is what is killing us. Uh, we are uh, throwing our souls open to Satan and throwing our nations open to Islam, his army and they are doing exactly what we should expect them to do. Now, what do they treat us as fools? no do they mock us? You know, remember they, they threaten us and then tear it with impunity, what they do. I mean, after all, there, there's a there's a, a fable of Aesop, which I'm sure you heard, and uh, I'm going to paraphrase it because I probably I can't tell you exactly what it was. But the uh, the uh, the idea was that I think it was a a person, a man, a farmer, whoever, who found a a serpent, right, and the serpent was lying out exposed during bitterly cold weather. Of course, serpents do not have uh, warm-blooded powers. I mean, the, 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 they're at the mercy of the ambient temperature, and the serpent was freezing. And so the serpent addressed the man and said, uh, Please, please warm me. Please, I'm dying. Please help me. <clears throat> and the man looked at him and said, Well, I, I can't help you. You're a, you're a snake. You'll, you'll kill me. You'll bite me. You'll poison me if I do. Oh no, I promise you, I promise you I won't. I assure you. I would never do that. If you will show me this act of kindness, I would never betray that act of kindness by doing you any harm. And the man was very skeptical, but he entered into this meaningful dialogue, a little ecumenical dialogue with the serpent, and finally <clears throat> the, the, the the serpent appealed to his human compassion. And so the man made that act of trust in the serpent. And it coiled up in his bosom and he was carrying it and warming it. And when the serpent was warmed up enough, sure enough it struck and bit him and injected its venom into him. And as the man lay dying, the man said, How could you have done this to me? You gave me your word. You promised me. I showed you this act of charity and this is how you reward me. How could you have done this? And the serpent simply said, What do you expect? I'm a snake. I'm a serpent. You've read the story. Mm -hmm. This is what we do. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, that's Islam. That's what the Islamics are trained to do. Uh, From the womb, basically, they are raised to do that. Uh, There is a branch of Islam that really does sincerely preach peace, honestly. They want to convert the world to Islam, but they don't want to use violent means. I can't even pronounce the name, but uh, there is a branch. They are mercilessly persecuted by the Islamics in their own country because the Islamics see them as the enemy because they'll take the sword out of their hand. And uh, and when those actually, there's a, I'm sorry for dominating this, but I'll tell you, there was an Islamic, there was a backlash because of the attacks in Paris that took place, a backlash in New York against an Islamic mosque or an Islamic center. And that backlash saw violence done to these Islamics who were up there. But they belonged to this particular sect of Islam that really, uh, uh, really eschews violence and really stands for a peaceful spread of Islam by the teaching of Islam and by good example. And they thought, <clears throat> isn't it ironic that this one sect of Islam that really does go against not only the Koran, but even the very example of Muhammad and preaching peace, uh, should be the one that was attacked mm-hmm. for what went on in Paris. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what they said? The members of that Islamic center in New York said, <clears throat> well, it's really nothing. Yes, we were attacked, we were beaten, we were roughed up, our property was destroyed. But this is very little in comparison with what we have to endure in Pakistan from the rest of the Muslims. Mm -hmm. That they are treated worse there, that even by the backlash Mm -hmm. to the Islamic violence here. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this tells you, I mean, Islam... And even even they would have to admit that they are considered to be the, the bad Muslims <laughs> you know because they're not violent and this raises Robert Spencer's whole point you know is the only good Muslim a bad Muslim one who does not follow the example of Muhammad and one who does not follow the Quran so anyway um, so uh, I think it all tied together here with uh, the subject uh, whatever it was <laughs> you know uh, it, it
1: does because um i mean it it shows the uh the perversion of the constitution um since vatican ii and the way that it's trying to be used by modern politicians to just say well you know what the uh, constitution um it separates uh, you know, the church from the state and so these uh, any religion that comes in it doesn't matter what they stand for uh is is uh, has the right to come in and say whatever it wants. but that's, As long that's as not it's true. not Christianity. Well, and that is another, I mean, that could be a topic for an, another show. And I think you, you, you've said it before. All of these different forces in the world now are all coming in. And, and if you stand it, and it was interesting. I mean, look, there. there's a backlash about Starbucks. I mean, Starbucks is a, such an immoral company to begin with. But there's a backlash because they don't even want to put Christmas trees on their cups because it has the word Christ in it. Mm. I um, mean, that's how bad it is. Anything that has to do, it doesn't matter whether whether it's the watered down Protestant version or if it's true Christianity. Yeah. That's the only thing it's okay to attack, mm-hmm. now, right? I and mean, that's mm-hmm. the the only you know you can attack the Christians as much as you want, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what about the protection that was supposed to be given to r- religion by the Constitution? It's all just been swept under the rug because of uh, these different uh, political agendas. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really does all tie together, and, and it shows that uh, I think the the founding principles and the founding virtues that were uh, in our Constitution, um, with with obviously the issues of, of there being Protestantism mixed in, and, and the other, um, I mean slavery, you know, at the beginning of our country, which which wasn't taken care of for nearly a hundred years. Um, but the strengthening of Catholicism in our country and the, and the growth of Catholicism in our country w- would have been the cure for that. And then, and then we see how, how the horrible effects of Vatican II have just dumped that yeah. dumped that out until we get to the point now where the, uh, uh, the Muslims and, and Islam are the uh, protected uh, religions yeah. here in our country and, and Christianity is stomped
0: on. Right, right. Christian refugees are being deported mm-hmm. or blocked. And hundreds and hundreds, thousands of Muslims are being imported. And given private place. They already consider that to be a conquest. <clears throat> when they come to our country and they go on the welfare rules. They they consider that to be a form of conquest. Because remember their religion tells them that the kafir, the, the, the non-Muslims have the obligation to be their slaves. And welfare, the government support of the muslim refugees is looked upon as their rightful what is due to them that they should be living off of us And we should be working and laboring for them to support them Because they have the master slave relationship them and us because they are followers. They're slaves of Allah So I mean even even bringing them into the country and having them go on the welfare rule is already acknowledging their conquest, the conquest of Islam here in America. <clears throat> of course, they want to impose Sharia law on all of us and formalize our dimitude, the fact that we are a subject people, uh, as slaves to the slaves of Allah. So, you know, the, the, what is amazing is that the American people are simply bl- allowing this to happen. I mean, there's a, there's a great backlash now, supposedly, in our government. Governors saying no. We will not take these people, <clears throat> these these uh, invaders that you're bringing over here and, and forcing into our states and on our populations. <clears throat> um, how many was it? Was it? Uh, I heard that as many as 25, 30 governors were saying no. One of them a Democrat, the rest Republican. Um, I don't know what the numbers are exactly. <clears throat> but whether they will be able to stand up now because of the uh, tyranny <clears throat> That is emanating from Washington, D.C. Uh, I don't know uh, wh- where this is going to go. I'll tell you one thing though: uh, things are coming to a head right now, and because of the immorality in our own country and throughout the world, <clears throat> I mean, even in Washington, where the where the president has a consort, Michael, you know, whom he even in- in- introduces as Michael mm-hmm. in in. Uh, in public gatherings, my goodness, uh, what have we got going here? Um, <clears throat> this the country is is um, Has betrayed itself into in the hands of such corruption That the sword is dangling right over our heads right now And so we have got to pray we we, we have got to stop pretending <clears throat> that um, you know, we we still have lots of time to get our act together here. We don't. Uh, the axe could fall at any moment, and we have got to start to pray that we really, really mean it. Uh, what Our Lady said at Fatima, praying the Rosary every day and consecrating ourselves to our immaculate heart. <clears throat> where else? Where else is there to turn? One may say, "Well, let's find a political solution." There, there. This is nonsense. Um. And even then, I mean, if there is a, if there are politicians out there who still have any, any faith, any hope, any love for God, and any, any, any prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, if they got anything left in them. Well, all the more reason we've got to support them with our prayers. Uh, they're going to need an enormous uh, surge of prayers from uh, faithful souls to support them. So it all comes back to that. And no matter what avenue God may choose to save us uh, It is going to have to be supported by our prayers So we've got to get busy and get on our knees and beg God for mercy here Um, It is the lack of this and the lack of virtue that is really uh, uh, Betraying us into the hands of the enemies our enemies and the enemies of Christ and it can only be uh, refound Uh, Virtue and prayer that is going to you know call upon heaven to marshal the forces necessary to rescue us
1: No, that is a a, the perfect way to end our discussion actually Um, You uh... well,
0: you know the United States of America was dedicated to the Immaculate Conception of our Lady She is the patroness under the title of the Immaculate Conception What great power there is in that? St. John Bosco had that vision, right? of the stormy sea and the church, right, being battered by uh, the storm and the waves and battered by enemy ships that were trying to to board her and, uh, and blast her and so on. And he said that he saw the church finally struggling through all of this to get between two enormous pillars rising out of the ocean. <clears throat> and one of them was the pillar of the Holy Eucharist. And the other was the pillar of Our Lady as the Immaculate Conception, and so uh, our nation, as being consecrated to Our Lady's Immaculate Conception, um, has to has to lash itself to that pillar, and uh, then there and only there will we find safety.
1: Didn't Washington actually have a similar vision uh, that he spoke about as well? About for America and, and the vision of the lady in pure white mm-hmm. being the savior mm-hmm. uh, of, of our country. That she would
0: save America. Yes. Right, yeah. right. And uh, not the savior of the world, only our Lord right. Jesus Christ can be that. But you're right that this this woman, by her purity, mm-hmm. the Immaculate Conception, a perfect, uh, perfect image yeah. of that, would be the one who, who you know, would save this country. Mm-hmm. So that's where we have to go. You know, that's why we named our church and our school after the Immaculate Conception, dedicating it to her. And this is why Our Lady says we must find there in her Immaculate Heart uh, the, the strength, the faith, the hope, the, the love for God necessary to be faithful to him in these times. And look to her, you know, to uh, be that pillar in the stormy sea right now. So that's where we have to go. That's where our Lord is sending us. That's what Our Lady's words have found in are calling us to calling us to her, Immaculate Heart.
1: Well, Father, I thank you very much for your uh, insights yes, sir,
0: tonight. Sir. Well, Jim, thank you. You, well, you had many very interesting, powerful things to say,
1: so I appreciate that very much also. And uh, we thank all of our listeners uh, and viewers uh, for uh, tuning in. Uh, we have received uh, more requests for various shows in the future, and we'll take a look at those. If you have any questions uh, or if you have any requests, prayer requests, Or if you just have any comments that you would like to send to us, you can do so by emailing. Uh, We thank you all for tuning in tonight. We remind you to please uh, remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families uh, to the Immaculate Heart and to pray and make sacrifice. Thank you.